Well, right. Well, bring it up. I mean, so, uh, Spencer Leonard, this is the parrot room. Now you're in the, you're talking only to the patrons and I'm glad to get a chance to do the second half with you. Um, as, as is normal these days, my head is in going in a thousand different directions. And because we're recording on a different day, what I want to talk about is maybe a little different than what we talked about before, but I think we can work it out so that we're, we're going to cover, uh, uh, a lot of ground, but before we start recording, I brought up to you something that, uh, actually Derek Varn had brought up to me, which is that the membership of the DSA is declining that, um, what looked like a massive growth in membership for the DSA like six months ago or a year ago is now being shown to be, it was actually the beginning of, of a decline. And I think they've lost like a quarter of the, of their members or more. Um, and you weren't surprised by this at all. Did you know about this as well, that this is going on? Um, I guess I don't have numbers on that, mm-hmm. uh, but I take it for granted. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously it's participating in a wider depoliticization. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's sometimes, you know, I guess at some level it's obvious to people and at another level they're not really registering or only perhaps now registering that we have for better or for worse we're we're putting the crisis in the rearview mirror now um you know what's been happening um obviously at an economic level there's been the long you know the great recession um Mm. and Obama was a kind of caretaker, late neoliberal uh, president who was elected to address the crisis and could not, did not, would not. And in that sense, his his presidency was a failure by capitalist political standards. Mm. And the... The, you know, those energies and that disappointment went into the Bernie campaign, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, you know, I guess one of the most fundamental failures of which was to identify the, the fact that Obama's presidency was a failure. Um, you know, the very fact that Bernie could never criticize Obama, I thought was a fundamental problem. And it, it, it was a fundamental problem for the young people who were, joining the DSA and thereby joining the Democrats and, Mm -hmm. you know, because they, you know, the strategy was, you know, a kind of a rehash of the old um, reorientation strategy, which had failed in the sixties and was, was bound to fail now. Um, So, yeah, I'm not surprised, you know, I think, um, you know, to tie it to what we were talking about before, mm-hmm. you know, the the subject we were discussing was imperialism, and you know, and and, and horrier still, you know, Marx's views on that, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it really wasn't a part, you know, or, or I guess you could say it's a it's a question that divides the older millennials from the younger ones. Um, mm-hmm because the anti-war movement was, you know, I guess at one level, you know, 
anti-imperialist. Mm-hmm. But it from the first, you know, that was a problem for them. And, you know, the question of, you know, solidarity with the Kurds or, you know, the problem of the Iraqi Communist Party, um, you know, pointing out that they didn't support, you know, military opposition to the American occupation. You know, there were these unmistakable, um, you know, the the search to find, you know, who is the victim of imperialism in in Syria. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, anti-imperialism never quite worked for the millennial left. And... Mm -hmm. And of course, it was completely absorbed into the Obama campaign. Mm-hmm. And from the time of Occupy, for you know, through the Bernie campaign, you know, the question of our geopolitics has, you know, really, you know, I mean, obviously today we're living in the midst of this, you know, seeming saber rat, you know possible buildup to war in the Ukraine. Mm. And you know, the left has nothing to say about this. Yeah, this is something I, that I, I, I want to bring this up. I mean, Trump really you know, t- took the wind out of their sails in general because Trump you know, was the peace president. You know. mm. Well, I mean, in a, in a sense he was, yeah. I mean, he did do some extra judicial killing and some ma- major Trump. bombing and uh, I think he increased the drone uh, policies of, of Obama. I think there was even more drone attacks under Trump. Um, but he but, was much more vocal than Obama ever was. He voiced the war weariness of the mm-hmm. U.S. and especially of the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. You know, when he would say things like, you know, the military loves me. By which I mean the soldiers, not the officers, right? right? Uh, and you know the strong support that he had amongst um, enlisted men. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, exp- what was his phrase? You know, endless wars. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he that, that was Dick Cheney's phrase. You know, he, Dick Cheney was like, "We're going to have a, the war on terror will not end in our lifetimes." You know, no one alive today will see the end of the war on terror. Um, uh, right. and so that yeah. was really fundamental to Trump, you know, uh, defeating Jeb Bush. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, for I sure. Hanging that on his neck. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'm, I'm interested, uh, to know how anti-imperialism, um, well, actually, I'm not going to get distracted by that. I'm going to ask you about the Ukraine, but, um, my feeling about what's happening in the Ukraine is that no matter what happens, whether Russia invades or not, and I don't know, has Russia invaded yet? Uh, but uh, whether Russia invades or not, the U.S. is not going to be sending ground troops to defend the Ukraine. We're not going to be escalating into a war in that region. That's just my sense of it, the situation. And it seems to me that the best you know, thinking for like a politician, the best thing for them to do would be to negotiate with Putin and say, yeah, look, we're not going to invite the Ukraine into NATO. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to invade um, and, and see if they can broker some sort of deal. Make, you know, but that, that to me, seems like the obvious thing to do. And I would, I don't know if that's a, a left position, but it's maybe 
uh, a sensible uh, position. Um, why do you think the the left overall doesn't have much to say about what's happening there and is confused as to how to respond to the saber rattling and the potential uh, violence that might erupt? Am I being too blasé, by no. the way, about this? No. Well, I mean, obviously, it, you know, we we live in a world in which, you know, irrespons an irresponsible ruling class can, you know, wreak terrible destruction, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really without willing to do it, um, you know, just by sheer blundering and incompetence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's a real problem. I mean, the incompetence. I, I, I haven't seen that in my lifetime. I have never seen a, the U.S. go to war without choosing to go to war, to go a war against its own will. But I know that. In history, I mean, I that's definitely think that you know. I, I definitely think that there is less appetite for war in this in this country right now, and it has to do with the fact, you know, of the unresolved political crisis you know obviously you know the way that the mainstream media will talk about that is that the country's divided um mm -hmm. you know i i think that um you know this there is a broad cynicism and depoliticization you know to get back to the decline of the dsa i mean it's these are dark times um mm -hmm. and i think you know putin's exploiting that um mm -hmm. you know i also think that you know, any student of history knows that, you know, the sphere of influence of Russia has been rolled back, you know, more than has been the case since Catherine the Great. I mean, you, mm -hmm. know, you know, the czar had, of course, immense influence, mm -hmm. you know, even beyond what the Soviet Union had, um, mm -hmm. you know, at its height. Um, well, maybe not at its height, but uh, you know, had immense influence in in regions that were later incorporated in the, into the Soviet Union and beyond. Mm -hmm. And you know, now you know, NATO's talking about expanding into territory that you know has has been under the control or hegemony of of Russia for the entirety of the modern age. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I think that. Um, there was a certain amount of blundering involved with that, uh, you know, but I, I, I think the real question is, you know, why the exhaustion, you know, um, you know, the sense of, you know, I, I think the, I think this administration is, you know, incapable of going to war. I think it's incapable of doing anything significant domestically. I think there's a sense of decline. Um, mm -hmm. he, you know, the, the, the geriatric, you know, character of the head of state is a kind of emblem, um, and, you know, the, I don't think that that captures, you know, the real situation. I don't think that, you know, the American empire is as unmistakably in decline, uh, as, um, you know, obviously the left, I think, you know, cheers. Yeah either imperialist rivalry or or just simply geopolitical rivalry uh it's, mm -hmm. it's not really clear why even you know what the language of imperialism even gets us anywhere anymore um but i don't think that you know i, I don't think that that's 
I don't think that that's belief. I don't think even they believe their own bullshit. You know, I don't mm. think I don't think that people really think that. You know, first of all, I don't think that anybody's going to start. You know, going to China. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think people are going to be immigrating to China mm -hmm. or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in general, the United States not only has, you know, a great deal of economic power, it continues to have a great deal of, if you will, legitimacy uh, in the world. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of anti-Americanism is, is really right wing and has been for a while. So I, I don't I don't know what there is to say, except, you know, of course, we all pray for peace because it's not going to. Um, you know, I, I don't see any leftist upside mm -hmm. you know, to this war at all. Um, well, where, where do you think that anti-Americanism uh, comes from? Is it um, a, a kind of a, an echo of the time? Where I mean, this gets back to the, to the real issue, right? Of what we were discussing before, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that Stalinism substituted decolonization for mm -hmm. revolution, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, obviously there was a, you know, even Lenin endorsed a kind of reorientation towards um, the East after the defeat of the revolution in Germany in 1919. And you know, pre you know, hopes for India, for China, uh, were a part of the common turn, the early common turn. Mm -hmm. And you know, that wasn't an attempt to substitute decolonization or or national colonial national self-determination projects for the revolution. Mm -hmm. it, it was part of a strategy of retreat, uh, and self-consciously so. But the left in the 20th century, you know, mm -hmm. took decolonization to be the way of affirming the course of history, right? So, you know, to be able to tell people that, you know, decolonization takes place in the context of a long, you know, the 20th century, um, you know, regression and counter-revolution is very jarring for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, um, but obviously, you know, when you, you know, the anti-Vietnam struggle was the way I would argue, you know, the most salient and obvious way that the new left distracted itself, um, you know, buried its head in the sand as regards the fundamental tasks of building a left in the core of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. That solidarity with the third world substituted for a much difficult, more difficult project, Um which would have completely revolutionized geopolitics, obviously, if there had been a rebirth of a socialist left in, mm -hmm. you know, West Germany, France, the Netherlands, Britain, and the United States and Canada, that would have, that would have reconfigured the entire face of the world, right. right? In a way that you know, we don't even know if the Vietnamese won or lost. You know, like did the right. left win in Vietnam? You know, no, I don't think right? so. But, but, but on the other hand, in Europe, in a, a large part of the world, so the, let me just finish. Right, yeah. let me just you know be sure that I answer the question. So okay. in, the question is: Did America defeat communist revolution? Did American imperialism defeat communist revolution? Is the American empire the enemy of the left? You know, I would argue no. 
right? I would argue that the left was most fundamentally defeated in Europe in the wake of World War One, mm. And, you know, in some sense, politically, the most egregious thing that the U.S. ever did was its support for white armies mm. in, in Russia. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it just pieced together global society in the wake of its collapse and ruin. You know, did the mm-hmm. left did the left destroy the international revolution? No, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, unless you believe that, you know, unless you're you know, unless you believe Maoist bullshit. At, in which case, you know, the 20th century is a great revolutionary century. Uh, you know that that's that you know, but for the counter-revolutionary role of the United States, uh, has seen the victorious people's struggles, you know, mm-hmm. the you know, triumphant or everywhere. Um, I, I think that that's you know, that's where the anti-Americanism comes from. Right? The anti-Americanism comes from the rotten left. Yeah. Um, and you know, the real question is, you know, did didn't the United States create the context for the reconstitution of the left in in Europe by mm-hmm. creating the conditions for the reconstitution of society? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, this gets to you know the question of the Soviet Union. I think because if you, I think in the fifties and sixties and seventies, even if you were on the left, you might be on the side of the Soviet Union uh, as a as sure. a the United States certainly in the fifties, that would have been the case. Um, and, and I recall that when the atom bomb was, you know, created, uh, it was leftist spies from the Soviet union who made sure that the Soviet union kept pace with our, with the development of the atom bomb. Um, and the reason why was because, the United States was uh, conceived of as being a, a threat to socialism, not just to the Soviet Union, and a, and a threat to the world as such. Um, and that keeping a check on the U.S. power was beneficial to the development of a socialist struggle, uh, maybe alongside of the Soviet uh, Union's struggle, maybe in, in opposition to it. But everyone, whether or not they were tankies or not, whether or not they loved, whether they were Bolsheviks or anti-Bolsheviks, would have agreed that checking American power was vitally important for the left at, at that time. I mean, so. I, I, I guess I would simply say that um, there really aren't two sides you know, in the post-war world, mm. the United States is overwhelmingly more powerful mm. than the East ever was. Mm. Um, the question, you know, of, you know, people had to ask themselves, you know, certainly if you want to, if you were a worker, where do you want to live? Mm. You know, that was an easy answer. That was an easy answer to that one, right? So, yeah, the United States, for sure. You want to live in the United States, right? What's the worker state in the world in 1955? It's the United States. Um, Mm. So, you know, obviously, no one, I'm not interested in endorsing Cold War anti communism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm simply, 
I would simply say that, you know, rather than looking at communism as a question of geography, mm -hmm. uh, I certainly think that all question, all discussion of communist countries mm -hmm. is a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc are a part of a U.S. dominated global imperialist state, ultimately. Ultimately, there's a global Bonapartist state. Mm -hmm. right? There's a global capitalist order of which so-called communism is a part. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, in other words, the issue isn't geography, it's history. Right? Mm -hmm. what, the issue isn't, you know, the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. The issue is 1950. Um, you know, what is the world in 1950? Um, you know, the U.S. is not a is not averse to socialism. It's a revolutionary country. Mm -hmm. It's built on, uh, you know, multiple revolutions. And socialism is a part of that history. But, you know, in the U.S., as in Russia, the socialist revolution lost its way. The socialist revolution was defeated. The socialist revolution ultimately came up against obstacles that it could not address. And those obstacles were not exterior, right? They were, right. They were of its own making. They didn't know how to move forward anymore. And the issue with communism is that it made that condition, that impasse, obscure by declaring victory, right? That yeah. there wasn't a crisis in the international left. There was the unfolding of communism worldwide mm. under, the, under Comrade Stalin, under Comrade mm. Mao, you know, the question is, you know, do you want to be on the right side of history or mm. in the dustbin, right? These are all, you know, the, the crime ideologically was to treat defeat as victory. Mm. And that, that defeat was not at the hands of the United States. Yeah, that that I, happens a I, lot on the left that we treat defeat as as a, as a victory. Um, you said yeah. that. Well, that's uh, the heart of Stalinism. That's the yeah. heart of Stalinism. It's not, you know, that they, you know, don't allow opposition press. It's not like any particular illiberal. It's not the stop. You know, it's it's not the state police. Mm. You know, none of right. those things are what make Stalinism Stalinism. Right? What makes Stalinism Stalinism is to say the state police and the illiberalism and the criminalization of opposition mm. and the um, consolidation of socialism in one country are what the revolution looks like. Yeah, right, right. Right? That this is the revolution. That's the crime. Yeah. Earlier you said that the millennial left, when they were facing and coming through the um, anti-war movement, saw anti-imperialism as a problem. Um, did they see anti-imperialism as a problem for the reasons that we just laid out, that it was a, that they understand that a struggle for socialism uh, was something different from the struggle from uh, decolonization? Uh, 
Um, do they I have this they, perspective? I think, they, I think that they saw the question of anti-imperialism, which is to say you know, the violence and inequality enforced through the agencies of the global state, the fact that war is endemic to global capitalism. Mm. Um, I think that they experienced that as the intergenerational transmission of the left, right? So where the anti-imperialism came from was from the old new leftists, right? This was their mm. last hurrah, mm. uh, you know, that, and, and they had, in a sense, they had done this to our generation, right? With Nicaragua mm. solidarity, you know, they had rehashed, you know, anti, you know, anti-imperialism. They had rehashed the anti-Vietnam War opposition with solidarity with the Sandinistas and right, right, and they were doing that again mm -hmm. um, in the two thousand zeros. And I think that the opportunity was there for the millennials. Right, so that anti-imperialism, of course, is not anything to disagree with. Mm -hmm. Right, it's just the way you know. The, the, I mean, there are obviously a lot of dimensions to this, um, but it was a way in which the defeated character of the new left was visible. Right, um, you know that. That women's emancipation, that the mm. overcoming of racism uh, was all, that these were also expressions of the defeat of the new left, right? Mm. I mean, the new left, of course, is going to tell us that they ended the war in Vietnam, they overcame racism, and they overcame patriarchy, right? Well, no, well, I mean... And the question is, how do you begin to understand that the that all of that is a way of masking the fact that the new left didn't build a new left. Right. Right. It's not that anyone's opposed to ending the war in Vietnam or overcoming Jim Crow or, or overcoming patriarchy, but these are ways of affirming the course of history, affirm, affirming the capitalist order, and of course, affirming the Democratic Party. Right. Mm -hmm. Which remarkably for some of these people, and obviously Obama traded on this, is supposedly an anti-war party, right? Uh, kind of insane. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the listening to the 60-year-olds or the 65-year-olds as they were then, mm. you know, by young millennials and being attracted to Marxism through it, right? That was really the high watermark, I think, for Marxism for the millennials was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right, which was also you know the time, of course, of the founding of Platypus. Um, so you're talking about 2006 or 2007? Yeah, around there. Yeah. Well, okay, I okay, a couple of thoughts come to mind, but I want to go back to. So the question uh, is the you know, so I just want to emphasize that the opportunity for the millennials was to recognize the need to overcome the legacy of the new left, and right. they have okay. failed in that. Mm -hmm. and have recapitulated the new left right, right. They're, they're even like getting kim moody out to you know rehearse the 1970s rank and file strategy and right, they mm -hmm. want to do every single thing <laughs> the new left right did. right to me 
you know, they, well, they got okay. to have a new anti-racist movement and they've got to have a third wave feminism, right? They've got to repeat, you know, they got to check all the boxes. And that's the missed opportunity of the millennials is at the beginning, they could see the possibility of, you know, these people aren't telling us everything. Right. All right. So um, in 2002, I was part of the peace movement in Portland. I've talked to Chris right. Patron right. about this and, and, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and my memory of uh, the peace movement is very different from Chris Catrone's memory and the, your memory. And what you're talking about is uh, the later millennial uh, peace movement. There was a millennial element in 2002 as well. Very young kids involved in the peace movement, you know, or not very young, but young to older, you know, I, I would say upwards of 26, you know, <laughs> year old people were involved and at that time i was like 30 31 and i was an elder uh for unless i was i was an elder of the young and then there was the boomers who were really in charge of the peace movement yeah. in portland there was an old institutional new left peace movement already in place right. even though it was a new organization called portland peaceful response coalition it had been put together by a guy who had been working uh, on the left as a peace activist since the seventies or sixties. So, right. It was, he was in the background, but um, at the, at first, and that this is when the peace movement was, when I was first involved, we were like opposing the invasion of Afghanistan, the bombing of Afghanistan, not Iraq. And then we moved to Iraq. Um, at first it was overcoming um, the attitude from uh, the public, including a good portion of young people and people who might you might think of as being sympathetic to the left or on the left or liberals, uh, uh, overcoming their opposition to the idea of peace, overcoming their opposition to uh, the anti-war position. Um, and what the way that was done was to retreat from anti-imperialism, to retreat from politics altogether, and to almost embrace a pacifist line uh, at first. Like, we are for peace, and that's it. We're not going to have political positions. We're not going to talk about what's happening in Afghanistan in any substantial way. We're just simply going to have a very uh, abstract position because the climate won't allow for real political conversation. And, and that was how it started. And the... I mean, Young I people. think that, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that um, 9-11, you know, raised the question of the growth of Islamism, mm -hmm. the fact that the revolution of our time, you know, has been the Iranian revolution. You know, um, mm -hmm. that's the crisis of the Middle East, you know, certainly flows from, in fundamental ways, the Iranian revolution. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that the U.S. lost its keystone ally uh, in the Middle East, you know, and has to rely on Saudi Arabia and, um, you know, which is, you know, funds global jihad um mm -hmm. and you know, all of that came home to roost at that time so 
you know, of course, I was in, in graduate school in Chicago mm. and a student of South Asia, South Asian history in a department of South Asian languages and civilizations. They were throwing money at us. Mm -hmm. People were being recruited out of my department to, you know, ultimately, ultimately to, you know, become CIA heads of station in Islamabad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it was all there, you know, when they were recruiting professors to teach Dari and all the languages of, of mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, what I remember, of course, I was on the left and and uh you know at the time and you know what i remember is the the a kind of a liberal awakening um you know i remember books like paul berman's book at the time you know of course i remember christopher hitchens's crack up mm -hmm. um you know people beginning to realize that um the politics in afghanistan uh certainly was indefensible Right. I think that that's what's driving your pacifism. Right. Right. Is that, you know, people can't they can't be in solidarity. With, right. With the Taliban regime. Right. No. Right. So uh, we found Rawa to be in solidarity with mm -hmm. the revolutionary uh, women of Afghanistan who uh -huh. are opposing the U.S. Uh, bombings, but also opposing the Taliban. Uh, they were a radical left organization within Afghanistan for women's emancipation and socialism who put out a line that eventually became the political stance of PPP, PPRC, or at least a section of us, you know, like the, we, we, uh, um, and the other thing to remember is that this at all was coming out of the anti-WTO protests coming out of the, what was at that time the most anti-capitalist movement around. Right. Um, so there was a sense of... Particularly strong out there in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, particularly strong there. Yeah. And so, like, um, I recalled some of the debates being uh, on the left being like, we can, like, uh, uh, a writer of some note in the Pacific Northwest was saying, we cannot allow ourselves to get diverted into a liberal... Uh, Democrat peace movement that has no aim to take down capitalism or and has nothing to do with the working class because it makes us feel good morally. We have to continue to strike at the heart of the beast and the World Trade Organization and blah, blah, blah. But, um, and you know, like, I don't know that that's the heart of the beast, but yeah, I mean, that I, was right. I right. certainly well, agree with the broad sentiment of, yeah. Yeah, there's a, this is a, these are distractions. Um, you know, I don't think that the left had anything to do with the course of history. No, obviously not at all. And you know, I think that I, I don't think that the left had much to do with the course of, or anything to do with uh, the course of history in Vietnam. Um, I don't think that the United States was defeated in Vietnam. I yeah, think well, that, you and Trump, you would agree. Like, right, Trump, I agree. I think Chomsky's absolutely right about that. You know, I mean. It, it, not that I think he draws the conclusions that I would draw, um, but I think the United States made it clear that, you know, we were going to have an orderly decolonization 
um, you know, and and one in which you know the United States was you know going to be consulted, uh, and if you wanted to have a disorderly one that was going to involve the killing off of certain classes of people, um, landlord classes, certain sorts of you know bloody and unpredictable land reform projects, um, there was mm. going to be a price to be paid for that. Um, mm. You know, I don't think that, you know, there was ever a question of world revolution at stake in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, and and I think that, uh, you know, with, so I, I think, you know, with, in the 2000s, the question really was, how is this a part of a strategy for socialism, right? Right. That had become completely threadbare, right? So here you have these old new leftists who have all of their crazy organizations and those organizations, maybe not in Portland, but nationally or, you know, the not in our name coalition, et cetera. Yeah. The, answer that it's a coalition. They are organizing the anti-war movement and they are telling young people, you know, that this has something to do with what Lenin and Marx were talking about. Right. Right. And, yeah. you know, that was, you know, there was a, a, a I think a real learning opportunity there. Mm -hmm. You know, to say, well, not really, um, you know, whatever, you know, we want, you know, pacifist organizations, you know, fine. Like, I'm not against it. You know, it, it's like in the Ukraine, you know, I don't want to see, um, I, I certainly don't want to see, you know, gratuitous, you know, needless death. And I don't want to see um, the, the kind of rank politics that might go with it. Um, and I certainly don't want to see, you know, anything remotely like, um, you know, an escalation to real geopolitical uh, instability. Right. Um, you know, that's not good for the left or any possibility of the left or any possibility of education. You know, it crowds right. out bandwidth. Uh -huh. um, but I, you know, the, the, the question, you know, when you see the, when you see Verso books translating Osama bin Laden, which they did, you have to ask yourself, what does this have to do with the left? And I'm not saying that Verso was like in favor of Osama bin Laden. Just what is what the fuck does it have to do? Why does anybody? Why why, why would Verso be? I mean, yeah, I why think, are we wasting one minute on this? Right? I think someone translating the works of Osama bin Laden in English was would have been a worthwhile thing to do at that time for his historical record, and so people sure. can access you know uh the facts basically and and understand what was going on but for verso to do so is extremely odd actually you know and um and well, i mean it you know and 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 you know we know that um the left was particularly you know i mean i was recently looking at this new you know anti-pastone book and the cpgb you know um, in Britain, you know, Mike McNair writing a preface to it. We know that there was all kinds of lunatic anti-Semitism after 9-11 on the left. Right. You know, I heard people say that it was a, a CIA Mossad project. It, it, you know, yeah. I, it wasn't made up. Of course they said that. Right. You know, these people have serious defenses in, you know, ideologically mm -hmm. to, to facing the fact that we're nowhere 
In have the, you read the anti-postone book, by the way? Just uh, for the side, have you read that book yet, or is it it's out? Sitting at, it, it, it's sitting at UVA Library, waiting for me to pick up. Um, okay, I gotta get it. I gotta I'm, get a hold I, of it. I'd be happy to, you know, to discuss that. Um, yeah, another we time. should definitely do that another time. So, it, you know, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that, you know, of course, you know, people wanted to ignore the fact that. The Osama, you know, that I'm sorry, the Saddam Hussein regime, the regime in Kabul, they were indefensible. The mm -hmm. people of those countries, by any measure, were seriously discontent. Mm -hmm. That, you know, they were probably convinced, poor things, that the U.S. overthrowing their governments might bring on. Um, better times um, you know that was real mm -hmm. just like Tahrir Square was not really about American imperialism right I mean it, it, right, was, right. it, was, it was about you know, the local rottenness um, and the fact that you know the US will is just a force for stability, really. It doesn't really care where that comes from. If it comes, mm -hmm. you know, if the Islamists won't lob bombs towards New York City, you know, they'll deal with anybody. They'll deal with the Saudis. They'll deal with the Shah. They'll deal with left-wing governments. You know, they'll deal with the mm -hmm. Labour Party. They'll deal with socialists in France mm -hmm. or in Israel, whatever, right? Um, this idea mm -hmm. that, you know, the U.S. is running around, you know, sort of, picking winners and losers and always for the right. It's just not true. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, the, the rightward drift, just like Stalinism doesn't come from Russia, right? It comes from mm -hmm. all over, not least the American left. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the rightward drift of, of global geopolitics doesn't come from the United States. Uh, you know, not, <laughs> not without a lot of help. You know. I, have, I have an odd question for you. It's way, way off the topic in a way, but it's back to the moment. What is it about the way the world is working and the way the U.S. Pow US power works and um, that makes it difficult or impossible for Russia to be a part of NATO? Why is there conflict uh, on this level between Russia and the United States or between China and the United States. What is the source of that conflict? It's not, it's not ideological. Like you just said, the U S will deal with anybody. Right. Um, and yet, uh, you know, we would love to deal with China. China wants to deal with us. We don't want to be, neither party wants to be in conflict. And yet there's this conflict emerging. What do you, why do you think that's happening from a Marxist perspective? Well, I, 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 it isn't economic. It isn't. No, I mean not in the sense that like there's some you know that the reality of politics can be explained with reference to the economy. No, mm -hmm. right. Um, you know that would be. I mean, I, there's obviously a lot of wised up Marxism in the world, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, that, that Marxism, you know, plays like armchair geostrategy or something. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, I think that that in general, that's a very rotten impulse. Oh. Um, because you know, we need to worry about being able to change the world, and we're in absolutely no position to change the world. Right. And racism is no consolation. You know, it it the I the fact that it's illuminating something mm -hmm. is best considered an an illusion. Because it's nothing. It is really nothing without a programmatic strategy for socialism, right? All that we can say is that because the, the collapse of world history is bound up with the collapse of Marxism, that a certain kind of understanding of that collapse of Marxism helps us to understand the present, right? Not some rotten, well, historical materialism tells us that really below the superstructural, you know, noise is the base economic reality. That is, you know, nonsense, I would say. Uh, you know, the real Marxist account would have to do with the failure of our politics. I completely agree that um, you know, I, I think the reality of the global order is that there's every reason for a kind of ultra imperialism where China and Russia and Europe, Japan, you know, South Korea, you know, every major country in the world cooperates. You know, mm -hmm. to, to jointly exploit the, the global working class, mm -hmm. um, you know, why not? Um, right. And of course, the money is interfused on all kinds of levels, right? There isn't mm -hmm. such a thing as American capital or mm -hmm. China, et cetera. Um, you know, that is, you know, that wasn't even the case, of course, in World War One. Um, and so I would say that, it, it's it's like asking the question of, you know, why can't we legislate anything in the United States? You know, why, why can't anyone pass a law about COVID or vaccines? Mm. Or pass a law guaranteeing the right of a woman to choose? Right? We can barely pass a law. Right, we rely on the Supreme Court to make our laws. Right, for often major things like gay marriage. Right, you can't even get people to vote. Right, there's a deep collapse of our political order. Mm -hmm. Right, even compared to what we've seen in our own lifetimes. Right, mm -hmm. uh, and I. But what would you what would you make you about know, the, that's what we're talking about? Right, we're but, we're talking but, about a real political collapse, a collapse of political parties, a, a, you know, a, a collapse of even the will to liberalism. You know, I think, you know, people obviously, you know, don't want to be bothered with their rights. They don't want to be bothered with the responsibility for the course of history. Mm -hmm. People hate, you know, um, you know, they think that humanity is a pox on, you know, is a crime against other species. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a, the rot is at that level. Um, 
you know, and it, it does mean that, I mean, it, this hasn't been responsible for a long time. I mean, look at these lunatics in Pakistan and in India with nuclear weapons. Right, right, right. You know, some Hindutva lunatic, you know, Modi and some former cricket star, you know, cricket player in, in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't have a, a, a remotely responsible geopolitical order, mm -hmm. right? These, you know, the, the Democrats, for God's sake, are, you know, have the most political power in the world. I mean, these people are sunk in, in, in mania, mm -hmm. yeah. right? They think that there's a white supremacist rising and, you know, I mean, who, you know, these people are what they, what they're worrying about are phantoms. Um, and I think that, you know, that's where I would begin is to try to explain the irrationality of the political order. Mm. Um, you know, and, and that by the way, is what, you know, that's what Bonaparte, that's what Marx's concept of Bonapartism is about. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what the notion of imperialism is about. It's about the democratic self-subjugation of society, right? It's about the erection of a political order to postpone socialism. Right. Yeah. Okay. I just want to go back to your comment about I'm I'm one of these terrible Marxists that likes to think in terms of base and superstructure. I'm just going to confess this. I know that's, that's yeah. uh, crass. <laughs> yeah. And and um and I don't think I don't think that I have a really simple-minded approach to it. But sure. like I'm reading the German ideology, and uh, you know the division the division of labor between town and country can be shown to have an influence on the ideologies of town and country. And not only that, but uh, and the, tra tra the trajectory that the, the of capitalist development, right? The contradiction between town and country, which is a material contradiction. Um, it's a, a economic contradiction on that level. Uh, also determined the uh, material and political trajectory uh, of bourgeois society and, and, and capitalism, according to the German ideology. Um, so I feel like it's worthwhile to ask the question, like what is the material basis of the division between the Russia and the United States or China and the United States? What is, uh, you know, and, 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 and how is that expressed politically and how does that political expression change the material basis and change the material reality because all those things are going on but i mean there was a moment after 1991 uh maybe a few years after where it didn't seem ridiculous that russia would join nato uh not not at least not to russians and i don't think even in the united states to a lot of people it didn't seem ridiculous it would have been a way to conclude the cold war um with a an established by establishing some sort of peace and really closing the door on the cold war and uh there wasn't well i mean the people in I mean, russia were suffering there was, greatly there was fukuyama right i mean there he was yeah. saying that you know liberalism is the untranscendable horizon of right. human history and so 
you know, and there were these like ideological fits that were thrown, you know, from the time of Hegel to 1989. But now people realize that, you know, this is the only way forward. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the question arises, you know, why do we need massive standing armies, right? Why do we need, um, you know, why, why do we need, you know, militaries that are armed to the hilt? Of course, why do we need cops that are armed to the hilt? Right? Why do our why do our cities need to be under armed occupation, mm-hmm. um, etc.? You know those questions, of course, are arise in in from a bourgeois perspective. The people of the world are at peace with one another. The people of the world are in cooperative relations with one another, and all war is a crime committed by, you know power hungry elites, you know, right. by, by princes, uh, right. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's the way that uh, Kant would have understood it, right. The way Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson would have understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's good to ask ourselves, you know, why that can't happen. I mean, what I would say about, you know, base and superstructure is mm-hmm. simply that, um, All everybody knows that our freedom is economic, right? That our society is somehow economic uh, in a conscious sense, right? That its its freedom is bound up with free labor mm-hmm. in a fundamental way. That was integral to the bourgeois self-conception of modern freedom right Mm -hmm. that that it had to do with our collective relationship to nature that it was material right Mm -hmm. this was a material form of freedom that um you know was taking place in nature Right, that humanity was an event within nature, that uh, society was an event within nature, that our freedom was, uh, you know, subjective and objective. Right, that some that labor was at the heart of it, uh, mm-hmm. as a collective phenomenon. Right, and our the crisis of our freedom is economic. Right. Mm-hmm. The crisis of our freedom is, of course, going to express itself in the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a crisis of political economy, just as our freedom was a freedom of political economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, capitalism is a crisis of political economy. I mean, what I would simply say about the German ideology is that, you know, what most people get from that in terms of like modes of production, you know, stages of history, mm-hmm. all of that. That's just, it's just bourgeois, right? Adam Smith has that. Mm. Right? Everybody knows that, right? It's it, any, any, I can convince any student of that, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, that a society based on serf labor is going to have the thoughts of a society based on serf labor, right? Mm-hmm. In some sense, you know, but. More importantly, you know, the point is, is that the society based on serf labor didn't think about 
serf labor at all. It didn't think about economics at all. It wasn't an economic form of society. Um, you know, Marx is simply in that text. He's simply trying to ask, you know, the the young Hegelians, mm. you know, why do you think that your thought stands outside of society? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That's what he's trying to say, right? He's trying to say, like, look, even, you know, a priest in ancient Babylon, you know, as as my old professor, uh, Moish Bastone, would say, he's a part of society. He keeps the calendar, right? He makes mm -hmm. agriculture possible. He tells us when the festivals are to be celebrated and when we're to plant and, and you know, when we're to reap, etc. Um in the same way philosophers are a part of society today and their their ideology is expressive of the needs of this society and mm -hmm. they're insufficiently aware of that for marx right mm -hmm. they're insufficiently aware of the crisis that they're facing in trying to advance hegelian philosophy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. They're attempting, you know, their attempts to advance Hegelian philosophy are actually falling below the threshold of Hegelian philosophy. Right. Now, thereby becoming the German ideology. Right. To advance Hegel's philosophy is to recognize that the circumstances in which Hegel wrote no longer obtain exactly. Right. right. That bourgeois freedom is self contradictory. Um, and our consciousness, you know, the consciousness of our social relations is, you know, lags behind the potential of this society because the consciousness, the consciousness that we have remains bourgeois, mm -hmm. but the um, social being, you know, the reality of our society points beyond bourgeois horizons altogether. Um, you know, I don't think any of that means that, um, you know, that there's a, I mean, I, I mean, quite frankly, it's, it's like a journalist's, um, wisdom, right? Like qui bono, right? Who, you know, who do you, you know, follow the money, right? Like you want to understand why people are trying to take down Joe Rogan's podcast. Well, follow the money, Right. You know, they're not, if this isn't really about COVID, it's about the profits or it's about Neil Young's, you know, songs. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. right. You can, right. Yeah. It's a simple, like, there's a simple and obvious truth to the fact that people tend not to think thoughts that are at odds with their interests. But of course, ideologically, at the level of convincing people, masses of people, of arguments about the direction of society as a whole, mm. we're not going to get there by understanding, like, you know, who does Jeff, you know, what does Jeff Bezos invest in? Like, you know, he right, okay. paying the Washington Post to control our minds. No, this is not going to grasp it, right? But I'm not asking, like, that kind of thing. I'm not saying, oh... What is who who benefits from the conflict between China and the United States? Because from my perspective, it's clear that neither side benefits. From my perspective, it's clear 
that, in fact, what would be best for both countries is for there to not be a conflict and for there to be trade between the countries and for there to be the mutual development and mutual interdependence. So the right. question for me is and for that, why? Unfortunately for that, socialism is possible. It's necessary. Right. right. For but, us, but, but why? But why is it necessary? It's the question. Why? Why can't we? Why is what is happening with the, the mode of production and distribution and politics and all of it that is born out of this class relation? I mean, th but the reason why, look, the reason why I want to ask the question, why is China and you know, why are China and the United States at odds with each other and say it's not ideological? It's not because China is communist and the United States is the enemy of communism which is some, some people on the left would say, but instead to say there's something about capitalist production and the, and the economic political economy that comes out of it that sets the world at odds with itself. And you can trace how that works and you can sure. look at, you can look at what it's doing to the money supply to both countries. And you can look at the labor shortages uh, that are going, that's going on here and the kind of labor struggles that are going on there. And, and the you know you can you can look at the political economy of the situation without saying oh it's a conspiracy of one rich guy of course right you know right and the fundamental um, point is that capitalism sets sets workers against each other right they, right ultimately you know it's a problem for the working class right it, it's it's the self another way to ask the question is why China and the United States why not Germany in the United States today? Why not? Why is it? Why is it not? You know, because there are different power centers and economic blocks, and and there's no real reason why Germany and the United States shouldn't be at uh, at odds in the same way that I know of, right off the bat. Right, I'd have to look into and think about why not. And the first thing that comes to mind is because a political solution was put forward after World War II. To, to limit the amount of conflict that would take place between European nations um, so that those, you know, development that did develop so that you have the, you know, the Euro, for instance, you had these economic and political solutions put in place to. Right. So the, I mean, obviously the United States recognized that the way to deal with the ambitions of Japan and Germany was mm -hmm. to give them scope. Right. I mean, this is the great, um, if you will, achievement of the post-war period is that the United States, you know, it, it wasn't crushing the left or something like that. What it was fundamentally doing was putting the world back together, you know, after mm. after immense war. And, mm. you know, it was remarkably successful in doing that. Now, why can't it continue to do that? Why can't it absorb, you know, a, an American-led global order? Why can't it absorb and give scope to the ambitions of Russia and China? Well, I hope and think that it can at some level, right, um, mm. in the sense of avoiding war, which I don't think any, you know, I don't think people really have the stomach for right mm -hmm. um i i do think that you know what we have you know what under the, you know, the underlying question is you know I'll, I'll tie it back into the imperialism question mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. 
you know, the Frankfurt School's word for the imperialist or Bonapartist state mm-hmm. is the authoritarian state. It's a way that they talk about. Um, it, it's a way that you know, they revive that category in light of the developments of the 1930s internationally. So mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to grasp through that category, you know, fascism, FDR's America, and the Soviet Union. And of course, more famously, and a lot of leftists are preoccupied with this today, uh, they also talk about the authoritarian personality as the kind of correlate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you are confronting as an isolated, atomized worker, mm-hmm. the reality of your dispensability that you are superfluous that Mm -hmm. there's always you know more you know others who are just as good as you Mm -hmm. uh, to take your place um you know and you find your way in the world through political conformity and your wages become indistinguishable from a kind of payoff for your conformity to the prevailing order. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first of all, that's in it's intolerable, right? It's psychologically mm-hmm. intolerable mm-hmm. Uh, because you have to wake up again and again on you know with the understanding that what you the violence that you have to do to yourself mm-hmm. is at some level itself unnecessary right we mm-hmm. we recognize that the world doesn't have to be this way and that we live in the wake of the failure of, of freedom of, mm-hmm. of of socialism in some important way i think that that is really what you know that is the fundamental social reality that we that you know marxists have to talk about when we're talking about racism or we're talking about the immigration question or we're talking about you know anxiety towards the chinese you know obviously we don't think of the germans as having taken our jobs right because german prosperity and japanese prosperity grew up after the war in a way in a context where American, but in the eighties, in the eighties, we did think of the Japanese as taking away our jobs. And you know, you and I heard anti-Japanese racism in a way that nobody, you know, twenty-five years old has ever heard it. Right. The, right. Right. You know, the little, you know, when, when we all saw, you know, when we started to see little Honda Civics on the road, and you hear, right. you know, the old, uh, the older men say, you know, goddamn rice burners or or, or yeah, right, whatever, right, yeah. Um, you know, so in and that was in the wake of, of course, the post-war crisis. You know, in the 1970s, mm. you know, Japanese cars appeared in the U.S. market, um, and uh, electronic goods. You know, in much, much more broadly, in you know, coinciding with that. Uh, so mm. I think that a lot of the hostility towards China, you know, of course, it kind of partakes of that. Um, yeah, I mean, it can't, the, the the hostility towards China. And the the and the love of China both are emerging after the long recession. I mean that that is setting up the context 
for the conflict and the embrace. It's also, you can't ignore COVID. You can't ignore uh, the personalities involved either. But, but I do think that there's something that I, I think that if you, once you accept that the conflict has to do with the way capitalism splits nations and peoples against each other and the working class against each other, then that helps the left overcome its love of, of China as the future of socialism, which has been developed, that's been developing. Um, and, and, oh, which and, is also- and of course in China, you know, we don't hear as much about it. I mean, you have to have Chinese leftist friends who know a great deal and, you know, it's hard for them to know a great deal. Uh, you know, it's, it's easier for the whole world to know a great deal about America uh, than it is for anyone to know a great deal about China. Uh, right. But of course, the Chinese Communist Party is, you know, a capitalist party. It's, you know, some level. Right. It doesn't mean that I don't know that, you know, that I that I'm in favor. It's the overthrow of communism in China. No, or, well, or well, can't reverse the, you know, the 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 issue of the gains of the Chinese Revolution. I can, and there, in some sense, they're still there. But there's massive labor discontent. They're trying to forcibly hold hundreds of millions of people on the land in China. They're you know, they have internal passports. It's a serious issue, right? right. And of course, they got you know they, they're having to stoke um, you know a traditional Han Chinese uh, racism against Chinese minorities. You know, I mean, it, it, there's nothing to to romanticize about. The right. anywhere, right? What we need is to build solidarity with, you know, with actual socialists around the world. And yeah. some of them may be found, you know, that, that might involve splitting the Chinese Communist Party uh, or something like that. I, I, it certainly means that, um, you know, we, we talk about internationalism amongst peoples and towards immigrants mm-hmm. uh, in this country you know, et cetera, that, you know, we don't care about what the state does, but, um, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're not, you know, I don't care what they do at some level at the border, but if somebody's working side by side with me, Mm -hmm. you know, the cops can't ask for their papers. Right. You know, like, of course. Right. Right. Of course. And, and these are things that we have to, you know, talk about that solidarity exists at the level of society, not at the level of States. Right. You know? Yeah. No, I, um, uh, I think this is, we, we've been talking for a little over an hour now. Um, I, I feel like we, we got somewhere, we got a lot of places that were really interesting. Um, I guess the last thing that I'll, uh, ask uh, you to maybe talk about briefly is how you think that in this contemporary moment, the left might be able to begin to think its way towards out of this, you know, or an, or an act in such a way to get out of this stagnation, to get out of this regression. Um, because it seems to me that, uh, I, you know, I see a lot of repetition. Uh, and as I get older, I feel like I get uh, a deeper insight into the way the left is repeating itself and have, less and less to say as to like how to stop that from happening. Like I have no idea how to, how to take hold of the reins or if it's even possible or if there is a left and so on. So what, what would you say? 
I mean, I guess I would simply say that um, you know there, there's going to be a you know there's going to be a lot involved in rebuilding a left mm-hmm. or something that could credibly claim to be the heir of the socialist left that is even inconceivable to me. You know, it, it may not take the, you know, I don't know if it's going to take the form of a reconstituted socialist workers movement. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just a second. So no I, I don't know what, you know, what form that will take. And there will be a lot of skills involved that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can tell you this for sure. And that is that the problem is not the right. The problem is not the Republicans. The the problem is not the Tories. The problem is on the left, right? Mm. We have to address the fact that we do not have the answers that it is that, that historically that we're still in the wake Mm of the collapse of our project, which was ultimately of our own doing, right? That ultimately the question of capitalism is a problem for, you know, for workers, for socialists. The capitalists didn't prove, you know, didn't create an obstacle that was insuperable. In fact, you know, the way in which that happened the right is always just the face of the left, right? It's actually the, the you know, in other words, the, the form that it takes is entirely conditioned by the left. It, the, the right has no project of its own, mm. never has. All that it ever does is to try to stabilize the status quo, mm. right? It, we have an ideological problem Mm -hmm. which is rooted in call it what you will i call it stalinism Mm -hmm. the collapse of the left the self-defeat of the left Mm -hmm. um you know the the refusal to to come to terms with our own history Mm-hmm. And this is why the, you know, this is why people don't want to follow leftists. This is why we can't build anything but sects, right? Society is right to not listen to the left because mm-hmm. so, these people are nuts that we're surrounded by. I mean, you know how you know what lunatics they are. Yeah, uh, and and so to to really um, begin to square, you know, to stop lying to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And face the past. I think that you know to to under to, because why? Because our theory of the past is our theory of the present. Right. And we're lying to ourselves if we think that presently we're in a position to take the rudder of history in our hands. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so I would say that there is a role for young people intellectually 
that we have we have an intellectual impasse we have an ideological impasse there may mm. be organizational and other impasses as well mm. but until we address that ideological impasse we're not going to be able to do anything in the real world in politics mm. in history um and i think that you know generations of young people have been told by the left that they are to substitute for a mass movement yeah you know that they're to be fodder for some activist project that doesn't actually have mass support so you get a bunch of unemployed kids in college to go out and act like they represent society as a whole mm. and and use use them in that way and they are demoralized they get it's a revolving door they get demoralized just like the young people were de you know just like the young people you know and of course they set themselves up for this but at the same time i feel compassion for the millennials yeah yeah you know yeah. they they turn themselves you know they're, they're going around knocking on doors for bernie mm. you know and even bright young students of mine from elite colleges, mm -hmm. you know, one are telling themselves that they want to become plumbers so they concede the unions. They're, they're going to follow a rank and file strategy. They're going mm -hmm. to do anything in the world except to actually address the intellectual questions. Right. You know, they're, they're all of the, all of the, you know, and, and you know, the kids that we know and the kids who are going to listen to this, mm -hmm are among the most privileged people on earth as mm -hmm. far as literacy is concerned mm -hmm. and their ability to handle ideological questions. And mm -hmm. with that privilege, you know, to sound a little Christian comes responsibility. You sound like uh, Peter Parker's uncle. Yeah, yes, but with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, and the power is not to become a plumber, you know, mm -hmm. or, or to, you know, beat the pavement. The power is to actually try to think it through and to and to come to terms with the level what, what I think you were talking about, the deep uncertainty. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, the fact that actually this isn't all clear, right? right. Yeah. All that is clear is repetition. Right. And and every time we repeat, it seems to me that things get worse. More degraded. Yeah. More degraded. Yep. All right. Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the recording there. Um